your attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Doing the impossible, why because he can. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love, love, freaking love talking about comics, movies, TV shows, movies, and comics. One subject I've not paid a whole lot of attention to, though, is Spider-Man. And there's a reason for that. When it comes to Spider-Man, I'm kind of a numbnuts don't really know a whole lot about the character or his history. I mean, look, everybody loves the Stan Lee-John Romita run on Amazing Spider-Man. I, I think there's something in the DNA molecules of any comic book fan that requires them to love the Lee-Romita stuff from Spider-Man. I mean, look, we may not be able to agree on much else as a fandom, but by God, we know Lee and Romita fucking killed it on Spider-Man. So what I'm saying here is that the fact that I kind of dig on the Lee Romita Spider-Man doesn't mean I get to call myself a Spider-Man fan. You can disagree on that if you want, but just remember that it's my podcast. Anyway, the main reason I don't know a whole hell of a lot about Spider-Man is because the books have never been all that accessible to me. But before I get into that, I should probably give you my Spider-Man origin story. My introduction to Spider-Man, like a lot of you, I think, came with Spider-Man and his amazing friends from the 80s. No, I didn't fall in love with Spider-Man, but I kind of liked him. A little bit. I started hardcore collecting comics starting in 1990. In those days, my collecting was mostly limited to the Superman and Batman titles, partly because those were the characters I was most familiar with, partly because those comics were plentiful and easy to find in stores and supermarkets, and partly because my parents were never really very encouraging about comics in the first place, and so Superman and Batman was about as much as I could expect either of them to stomach. I later expanded my collecting, though. There was a point in the middle of 1994 when my collecting really went into overdrive. And one night, my LCS had this mega party and invited, well, basically the entire fucking city is what it boiled down to. Now, it may be hard for some of you to to remember these things, but... I used to have several comic book stores in my local area, and they would all have parties once in a while. 
There'd be door prizes, contests, mega sales, and other shit, too. I mean, it's fucking unbelievable. You just wouldn't believe the prices on some of this stuff. Certain things could be had for pennies. Pennies. Certain other things could be had for hundreds of dollars. These days, the prices on a lot of those same comics have basically averaged out to around 3 or $4 per issue, but... Back then, by God, that first appearance of Jubilee could set you back a few hundred bucks. Easy. You might be wondering what the fuck this all has to do with Spider-Man. Shut up and be patient. I'm getting there. Anyway. So naturally, I attended as many of those mega-sale parties as I possibly could. And I kind of like the party atmosphere of it all. I loved the prices you could get back issues for. Because then as now... I consider myself to be something of a back-issue junkie. And let's face it, I was a fairly awkward kid, so it's not like I had much of anything better to do on a Saturday night. Well, being as I was too young to drive, I had to depend on my folks for a ride. And usually that was my dad. My mom wanted nothing to do with comic book stores. She's never come right out and said so, but... I've always believed that she regards comic book stores pretty much in the same way she thinks of head shops. But anyway, so you can probably guess where this is going. My LCS had another one of their insane parties with insane prices on some things, but also insane discounts on other things. My dad and I went there and he just started grabbing comics off the shelf. And I'm talking about giant fucking handfuls of comics. Now keep in mind, this was the same guy who, like I said a minute ago, never really showed much support for my hobby. But he's still a very generous person and very loving father. Plus, I think he'd gotten some sort of bonus or something from his job, and I remember he was throwing money that whole weekend. He was just throwing money around that whole weekend on me, my brothers, and my mom. All of it. So, you could say this LCS wacko party was great timing. Anyway, among the zillions of comics he grabbed, one was Spider-Man Classics number 14, which reprinted Amazing Spider-Man number 13, and another was the Spider-Man Torment trade paperback. I shall repeat that. One was a reprint of Amazing Spider-Man number 13, and another was the Spider-Man Torment trade. There's some other shit there too, but really none of it relates to what we're talking about here, so I'm moving on. So I got home much later on to check out some of my loot, and this was a seriously good haul. I was finally caught up on all Batman stuff at the time, and in 1994, it was very important to my comic book collector vanity that I be fully up to speed on all things Batman. These days, I don't give a shit. Anyway, so, I started digging through everything, and man, oh man, I knew the, I knew the whole rest of my weekend, and probably all of the next weekend, were now booked. But, those two things jumped out at me. Spider-Man Classics and the Spider-Man Torment trade. Now, understand, I had no idea the significance of either of those. I just knew that they were Spider-Man comics, but otherwise, totally clueless. 
Well, after getting caught up on some other stuff, I figure I'd give those Spider-Man comics a shot. Now, understand that this was this was a big deal for me at the time. I've always had a bit of a prejudice against Marvel. And part of part of that was at least the perception that their books were impossible to get into unless you had 15 or more years worth of continuity memorized. And at the time, I think... Honestly, at the time, I think that was a very fair assessment of shit like the X-Men and whatnot. Very little effort was ever made to cater to new readers back then. And why should there have been? They were selling millions of copies of some comics, so obviously something was going okay. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Anyway... Figured I'd start with a reprint. I've always kind of liked reprints. It's a really old story, but it comes on newer paper with modern coloring and printing techniques. I'm sure what's not to like. So I read Spider-Man Classics number 14, which, like I said a while ago, it reprinted Amazing Spider-Man number 13. For those of you who don't know, that was the first appearance of Mysterio. And dude, I loved this issue. It was rare, even then, for me to immediately read a comic book twice. But this time I did. When I I finished reading it the first time, I flipped back to page one and started over. I loved Steve Ditko's art. And I think everybody appreciates Spider-Man's kind of shit public image from back then. I loved... Spider-Man's banter and his jokes, those were lots of fun. And I just really enjoyed the corny dialogue. But the real selling point was Mysterio's costume. Now, I won't poke fun at Mysterio's costume, because, I mean, it's, it's kind of a Kevin Smith thing to do. It's almost a cliche at this point. But what I will say is that some characters have such shitty outfits that You can't help but love them. I mean, God bless them, they tried. I knew going into the thing that Spider-Man classics reprinted old Spider-Man stories. I may not have been the smartest kid in the world, and I assure you I wasn't, but at the same time, I wasn't a total idiot either. This story clearly was pretty fucking old. I finished the story and thought to myself that Spider-Man was big shit even back then. And what I, I guess what I mean by that is people just couldn't get enough of Spider-Man. So if this ancient story was so... I mean, if this was awesome on a cracker, how punk rock must the newer comics be? I mean, this story from the 60s was fucking awesome. The newer stuff must be even better, right? So I grabbed the Torment trade and read it. Now, this is going to strike some of you as weird, but... I knew Todd McFarlane mostly from Spawn. Yeah, 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 Spawn, Image, the 90s, Speculator. Shut the fuck up, you read it too. Don't front me. Anyway, I'd, I'd been too young to check McFarlane's stuff out on Amazing Spider-Man and really too prejudiced against Marvel in general to test drive his stuff on adjectiveless Spider-Man. So, in a weird kind of way, Torment as a trade paperback, was my first real introduction to McFarlane's work on Spider-Man. Well, apart from posters and t-shirts and trading cards and other shit that I don't think really counts. Now, people bash on Torment 
a lot. And it's funny because back then I was thinking a lot of what people are saying now. The story's too thin. It's ponderously slow. Nothing really happens in it and all that shit. My argument is this. For those of you who are just determined to run Torment down, hear me out. If you can forget which year this comic was published, and you were to reread it now, you'd think it came out last year. The problems a lot of people seem to have with Torment as a story can be said of most modern comics. So, if you don't like Torment, how the hell are you not driven completely insane by modern stuff? As I say, though, that's what I think now. But back then, I was saying the same stuff as everyone else. I never, in fact, I'd go a step further. I never saw what the hype was all about with Todd McFarlane. To me, his stuff looked like John Byrne, but with a shitload more lines thrown in. But basically John Byrne. Otherwise, I thought Torment was terribly mediocre. I mean, I, I could follow the story and the characters well enough. The art was good, I guess. But something about Torment as a storyline just left me cold. But hey, this is what I was thinking at the time. But that's an ancient story. So as well, I was thinking to myself, it's an ancient story. It, it came out years ago. McFarlane's moved on to his Image Comics stuff, so they've probably got better writers and artists working on the books now. And so I resolved to start collecting Spider-Man. I, I figured if I gritted my teeth and forced it, the shit about huge continuity and inaccessible stories and all that other stuff, that would all take care of itself after a while. And... Honestly, who knows? That might have even worked. Unfortunately for me, though, I wasn't able to start following Spider-Man until the very tail end of 1994. Basically, just about the time we were getting into the armpit of the Clone Saga, the Spider-Man titles all had this uniformly dark atmosphere to him. Some of, some of the comics were drawn by Tom Lyle, who did a great job with Batman, I thought, but he really wasn't my cup of tea with Spider-Man, and overall, I just felt completely left out in the cold by the Clone Saga. That's not to say there weren't some bright spots, because there were. That was when Mark Bagley became my first, my, not my first, my favorite Spider-Man artist. If nothing else good came out of the Clone Saga for my participation, at least I can say that I was introduced to my favorite Spider-Man artist of all time, thanks to Bagley's run on Amazing Spider-Man. But otherwise, it felt like Marvel was determined to take everything that was cool and original about Spider-Man, throw it out the fucking window, and make him into a married Batman. Basically, it was Batman for the middle class. And no thanks. So, here I was with this burgeoning Spider-Man fandom, but no real outlet for it. Collecting back issues seemed pointless if the Clone Saga was just where I was going to end up in the end anyway, so I was lost and adrift for a while there. But then, out of nowhere, came Untold Tales of Spider-Man in September of 1995. Kurt Busiek was the writer, and Pat Olive, Olive. Alif, 
I never figured out how to pronounce it, but fuck it, I'm saying Olive. Pat Olive, the artist, had a sort of slick and modernized update of Steve Ditko's style. And the basic premise of Untold Tales of Spider-Man is pretty straightforward. These stories all took place in between the early, early, early issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Around the same time, there's also a three-issue Amazing Fantasy miniseries, also written by Kurt Busiek. It was Amazing Fantasy number 16, 17, and 18, and obviously took place after Amazing Fantasy number 15, but before Amazing Spider-Man number 1. In between all these things and Spider-Man Adventures, which was the uh, the monthly title that was based on the, the animated series that was going on at the time, it felt like there was finally an alternative to the shitty clone saga. Now, you young listeners out there may not fully appreciate all this. I mean, look, if you don't like what's happening with a character in the regular Marvel Universe... You can always switch over to the Ultimate Universe, and vice versa. But back in the 90s, we didn't have that option most of the time. If you didn't like what was, going, what was happening in, I don't know, the Avengers at the time, pretty much you were fucked. And I was fucked for a long time because the only Spider-Man stuff Marvel put out for a while there related to the fucking clone saga. So... What I'm saying here is that, to a fair number of us, Untold Tales of Spider-Man is more than just a good comic book. I mean, yeah, it's that too, don't get me wrong. But it was a safe harbor for us to go to so we could escape the mess of the clone saga that was going on at the time. Anyway, the quick summary for the first issue is Peter's life sucks, Spider-Man's life sucks even more, Spider-Man tries to get deputized as a cop by Captain Stacy, but no luck, to prove his value, Spider-Man captures the Scorcher, only to find out that he ruined a perfectly good police investigation in the process because they wanted to find out who the Scorcher works for, but now they can't. And it's all Spider-Man's fault, and now Peter has a cold because of his adventure, but he's determined to keep swinging away no matter how hard things get. In issue two, Peter gets chewed out by Jonah for trying to get into Betty's pants when she's on the job, and finds out one of his classmates being abused at home. Even though the guy's a complete jerk and a bully, Peter offers to tutor him anyway. Meanwhile, Spider-Man scours the city in search of some kind of bat mutant who's terrorizing everybody and making life miserable. But later, Spider-Man finds out he's just a lost kid who's, so far, only stolen food. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. So Spider-Man lets him go, and kisses off a major reward in the process. For the third issue, Peter's excited that he has a date with Betty Brant. That doesn't last long because Spider because Sandman because Sandman beats the fuck out of him and now Peter's afraid for his life. But his date with Betty inspires him to square off with Sandman again. And of course Spider-Man wins. In the fourth issue, Spider-Man struggled he's struggling to, to fight and apprehend the group of criminals called the Spacemen. But they keep escaping. Meanwhile, John and Jonah Jameson are having major disagreements about Spider-Man and NASA's efforts to recruit him to become an astronaut. Spider-Man eventually takes the spacemen down, but John Jameson eventually realizes Spider-Man isn't such a good match for NASA. Now, that's where the fourth issue ends, and to get going in my commentary, <clears throat> are things perfect here? No. Nothing is. 
the first issue of Un <clears throat> of Untold Tales of Spider-Man, in fact, fuck it, all four issues of, of Untold Tales of Spider-Man, make no effort to, exp to explain where all this stuff fits into continuity. Now, I'm not a huge expert on Spider-Man's history or his continuity. Logically, Untold Tales of Spider-Man number one has to take place after Amazing Spider-Man number two, because that's when Peter first started freelancing at the Daily Bugle. But where does it fit exactly? I have no friggin' idea. None. I'm sure there's someone out there <clears throat> more learned about Spider-Man's continuity than I am who can tell me exactly where all this shit fits together. But you know what? That's not good enough. I mean, would it have really hurt anybody to include those little caption boxes that Stan Lee himself made famous by explaining this shit? It doesn't have to be anything fancy, just a little blurb. Hey there, Mary Marvel fans. This ass-kicking Sandman talked about just then happened back in the stupendously classic Amazing Spider-Man number four. Something. Anything. Just don't leave this shit so open-ended. But at the same time, it's hard to go too hard on any of this stuff. Like I said, the art looks like a sort of update to Ditko style. The action's non-stop. And best of all, Spider-Man's back to making jokes and wisecracks when he battles supervillains. I mean, it's just a fun comic book. And Olive had his thinking cap on, really, for all of these issues. On page 5 from the first issue, Olive draws Peter in various places and situations. One panel's at home with Aunt May. The next he's at school. The next he's getting screamed at in Jonah's office. And in the next panel, he's looking out a window in the Daily, the Daily Bugle building. In each panel, his shoulders are slumped and his eyes are downcast, as he's mostly oblivious to what's happening around him. Maybe Buziak wrote that into the script. But maybe not. It's possible that Olive thought all this stuff out on his own. But either way, it's incredibly well done, and it takes you back in time to when these conflicts and themes were foremost in, in a lot of Spider-Man comics. Buziak didn't skimp on the details of the era. These don't just feel like Stan Lee's stories. They're canonically designed to work with Stan Lee's stories. Here's an example. Peter kisses Betty Brant on the cheek uh, on uh, page 7 in the first issue, and she smiles like she just won the fucking lottery. Jonah storms out and says something about malt shops. In fact, a lot of dialogue in these comics feels like it was ripped directly out of old Stan Lee's imagination and slapped onto the page. And it's, just, it's, it's little details like that, you know? That stuff is what makes Untold Tales of Spider-Man fit not just within the style of the Stan Lee stories or the continuity of them. And those things are important, don't get me wrong. A series like this needs to follow Stanley's style and continuity, and that's what Buziak does. But it, it just it it feels like this is just of a piece. It reads like anything from maybe the first year or so of Amazing Spider-Man, and that is where Buziak goes that extra step. These stories are actually set in the 1960s. Buziak doesn't really try to hide that fact. There are times when the cars and even the fashions, at some points, are totally of the 60s. 
it's a modernized 1960s, if that makes any sense. And it just works for me. If you are too young to wallow through the, the clone saga, you probably have no idea what a breath of fresh air this series was. I mean, just shit, I barely know. Because I tried getting into Spider-Man during the Clone Saga. But I feel like I've got some decent perspective here. And basically, The Untold Tales of Spider-Man was exactly the title that I wanted to follow. This was exactly the Spider-Man stuff that I wanted at the time the first issue came out. It was just what the Doctor ordered for me. It was old-style Spider-Man action without any fucking jackals or clones or actresses pretending to be Aunt May or any of that other bullshit. Olive's art had this vaguely Steve Ditko thing going, and overall, this was, this was the perfect way to survive the clone saga. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting to me how Untold Tales of Spider-Man ended at about the same time the clone saga did. You'd almost think the only reason Untold Tales ever existed in the first place was to be a safe harbor for people wanting to escape from the Clone Saga. Now, don't take this as being me all down on the Clone Saga. I Honestly, I'm, I've come to a place of acceptance with it. I mean, it wasn't supposed to last as long as it did. A lot of shit went wrong that really wasn't anybody's fault. I mean, fucking blah, blah, blah. And hell, I'd argue that Ben Riley shouldn't have been killed off. I've always seen a ton of, of dramatic potential with Ben Riley, and I would, in fact, you know what? I'd go so far as to say I would have followed a solo Ben Riley series if one had ever been published. But that's all in the here and now. Back then, the Clone Saga wasn't at all what I wanted from Spider-Man. As a matter of fact, I blame the Clone Saga for basically aborting my Spider-Man fandom. If the Clone Saga hadn't been so off-putting to me, I'd probably have gotten into Spider-Man back when I was a teenager and followed him up to now. But that might have been an occasion for a lot of heartache, so... Hmm. Anyway. So that's what I've got for Untold Tales of Spider-Man. At some point, hell if I know when, but at some point, I'll come back to Untold Tales and talk about a couple more issues. But for now, I'm going to take a break. I'll be right back after these messages. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Neymar and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? 
Charlie. Charlie. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, would remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, Gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com.
I'm back now, and usually right around here is about the time I'd go into some feedback, but I'm not gonna do that this time around. I guess to start with, I don't think I ever really laid out what the high concept behind the series that I just started is, and uh, it, you'll probably figure it out as you go along, but this time around, obviously, I talked about The Untold Tales of Spider-Man, uh, number one through four. And then next week, I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. This was Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 11 through 15. It's a storyline entitled Prey, P-R-E-Y, Prey. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. I This is one of those... Batman stories that history seems to have forgotten about, but I gotta be honest, I love it, and it and it's kind of strange how that sort of, for a time, became sort of informative of who I thought Batman was. You know, for a long time there, this really defined Batman for me in a big bad way, and honestly, the original concept I had for this series, I'm gonna alternate, it's gonna go back and forth between uh, Spider-Man and Batman. I originally intended this to come out in the year of 2014 when I was first, you know, devising everything. But what I eventually realized was that I was very determined to give Batman fans the middle finger. And so I pretty much wanted to completely ignore Batman through the year of 2014. And it mostly did. I talked a little bit about... Uh, it, you know, during 2014, I talked about, um, I, I had Norm Brayfogle, Batman penciler extraordinaire on for an episode. Then I, later on, I talked about the long Halloween. And then much later, even from that, I talked about Batman Returns. But apart from like those three episodes, I really didn't talk a whole hell of a lot about Batman during 2014 because... I realized it was his 75th anniversary, and I'm sick and fucking tired of Batman and Batman fans, and so what I wanted to do was spend a decent portion of 2014 denying Batman his time in the spotlight and extending Superman's time in the spotlight by observing his 76th anniversary. Because I'm sick and tired of seeing those fucking Facebook memes that never seem to fail uh, to you know, make fun of Superman and take Superman down a peg. Well, assholes, now it's my turn. So, hope you enjoyed it. Anyway, um, but, like I said, so that was originally scheduled for 2014, this little mini-series that I'm going through right now that was set for 2014, and for those reasons, I delayed it until 2015, and so, you know, pretty much it's, it's really no more complicated than that. But, uh, keep in mind... I'm recording this from your standpoint months ago. Uh, basically, a, an episode of uh, Views from the Long Box uh, just came out. Really, it was just a, a couple of days ago. And it was basically, it's episode number 188, entitled Legion Talk. And it's, it's basically Michael Bailey and the Irredeemable Shag talking about the Legion of Superheroes. And... Now, I love the Legion of Superheroes. I really do. I really have... Uh, I, and 
Actually, you know what? I'll come back to my origin story for the Legion, I guess, later on. But, you know, I really like the Legion. And so for that, for that reason, I really enjoyed that episode of Views from the Long Box, you know? And again, that's episode 188, the title of which is Legion Talk, and that came out on July the 8th, 2014. Now, I realize that's forever ago at the time that you hear this, but because I record all my stuff so far in advance, it's just come out. So, you know, whatever you may think of that. And, you know, I just, I really enjoyed listening to, to Michael and Shag just kind of wax fanboy about the Legion of Superheroes. And so that was a lot of fun. And I encourage all of you who are listening to this, encourage all of you to just go out and, you know, track that episode down, find it, listen to it. And hopefully, you know, you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Now, as to how I came about being introduced to the Legion of Superheroes, it's a, it's a little bit of a complicated story. I mean, basically, I came up when, as a comic book fan, you understand, the, I came up at a time when the Burn Age Superman was nearing his pinnacle, right? Because uh, I think, you know, the Burn Age Superman, he did, there came a point when he sort of peaked. And not to say that the stuff that came later was terrible, although, but I, I just kind of feel like there was a, there was a period in, I don't know, maybe the late 80s going right on through to maybe a few months after uh, that whole reign of the Superman chimichanga kind of came to an end. That, to me, was, I guess, the pinnacle of the Burn Age Superman, you know? And so that's, to me, that's, you know, that's just the way that I had come to think of Superman, right? That's just how I viewed it. John Byrne had done so much to shape my sensibilities as to not just who Superman is as a character, but I guess the fundamentals and the, the ins and outs and minutia of his origin story and his history. You know, I guess the character's larger personal biography, maybe is the best way to put it, that anything that fell too far outside of that I really didn't understand all that well. So that's the context into which I was introduced to the Legion of Superheroes. Now, I want to say it was probably around 1990 or 91 or something like that. Uh, DC Comics, they basically launched this... Um, it, I'm not really quite sure how to put it. It was a sort of... It was a series of reprints. You know, of basic, uh, basically it was historic... Uh, Silver Age uh, stories, right? So, I think the first appearance of uh, Barry Allen was one of them. Action Comics number 252, uh, which introduced uh, Metallo and Supergirl and the Martian Manhunter. That was reprinted. Uh, And there are some other ones, too. And, of course, wouldn't you know, now I'm blanking on it, but... You know, those were some of the comics that were reprinted. But included in there was also Adventure Comics number 247. Now, for those of you who don't know, Adventure Comics number 247 was where the Legion of Superheroes were first introduced. And so, especially, I think, in the, you know, the late 80s, it really made a lot of sense to capitalize on the Legion of Superheroes. Because I think even, 
even then, they were one of uh, DC's, I don't know if I should say premier books, but they were still, at that time, they, they still had a very strong legacy going. There was a lot of historical interest that was going on there. And I think that was probably the main reason why Adventure Comics number 247 ended up getting uh, reprinted, right? So, pretty straightforward. And so, the basic pitch of the story is that Cosmic Boy, Saturn Girl, and Lightning Lad, they pay uh, Superboy a visit, and they kind of just kind of fuck with his head a little bit. You know, they when he's disguised as Clark Kent, they call him Superboy. When he's Superboy, they call him Clark Kent. All of that. And they're basically just trolling the guy, really, is what it comes down to. And so, you know, then the story goes off in some other directions. There's this, you know, tournament and a competition. And wouldn't you know, before too long, Superboy is inducted into the Legion of Superheroes. As well he should be, because he inspired the very existence of that team. So it makes sense to, if, if you have time travel capabilities... Fuck it, why not? I'm, you know, why not travel back in time and recruit the very person that inspired your team's existence in the first place? So, that much I get. And it's not like it was all that mysterious to me, even back then, even when I was a kid. It's, you know, I guess it's, it was just something that, it wasn't that I couldn't understand the concept or I couldn't relate to it. No, it, it, the larger issue was that I very much liked the idea of Clark having a sort of mundane and sort of, I would say almost boring childhood, at which time, you know, he eventually leaves Smallville, travels the world, and basically operates as a sort of anonymous hero. And then the day comes when he's forced to operate and use his powers in public openly. And then that's what ultimately forces him to create Superman as a as a uh, an alternate identity. And so, I really liked that when I was a kid. It it really played for me. And so, it just perfectly lined up with my sensibilities about who Superman is and what he's all about. And so, so there's that. But the thing that made me uncomfortable then, you know, on that basis, what kind of made me uncomfortable with Adventure Comics number 247 was Superboy joining a team. Well, actually, beyond even that, the mere existence of Superboy was kind of troublesome for me, you know? But over and above all of that, it's like, why does Superboy need to join a team? I mean, what can they possibly do to help super I mean he can do anything that they can do and probably do it better the fuck does he need them for you know and so basically that was my initial reaction to to uh, adventure comics number 247 I just didn't get it and this is not to mention the fact that silver age legion of superheroes man uh, look I realized that comic books were different back then and you know even as a kid I could appreciate that but even so uh, it's just a tough sell it really is Le uh, silver age legion that stuff can be pretty fucking weird so so that didn't help and so i pretty much found myself at odds with the legion of superheroes for a good bit of my childhood 
And I know that the Superman story time and time again was... I don't know if I would go so far as to say it was intended to alleviate confusion like I had uh, when it comes to the Legion, but I think it was fundamentally intended to, or at least the Dan Jurgens issues, were they were intended to sort of give maybe a different perspective on the Legion of Superheroes, especially for Superman, because he really didn't have a whole lot to do with the Legion of Superheroes, especially, you know, during this period of his publishing history. It's just the Legion and Superman really didn't have a whole lot to do with one another. It's just fucked up, but that's what happened. And so I didn't really understand the team dynamics of that, you know, late 80s, early 90s Legion of Superheroes. I didn't understand really what motivated the team and what made them tick and all of these other things. And this is not to speak of the fact that the time travel aspect didn't exactly simplify things. Now, sure, I can read that today and, and kind of see that Dan Jurgens is sort of playing with what was at the time sort of all eras of the Legion of Superheroes, and that much I get. I mean, look, that makes sense to me. I understand it. Now. But back then, it was a little bit harder to understand why the the team membership, why the roster just kept changing up so radically. And so today I can understand, well, you know, he's seeing the team at different periods in their history. And of course, they're going to go through growth and changes. People are going to join the team. Some people are going to leave the team. Some people are going to die, you know, all these other things. And so it's easier to understand it now. But I'm just saying that that aspect of the story, time and time again, when I was a kid, it was kind of a little bit challenging to get my head around. And this is not to mention the fact that back then, you pretty much could, you, I mean, you could buy the issues of comics that you could find. But if you missed an issue, it, it's not that it was impossible to track down. It just took an incredible amount of diligence sometimes. And let's face it, at the same time that you're hunting down back issues, new issues are coming out right now that advance the story. And so I think I face the same kind of complications that a lot of kids my age did, that you've only got so much money coming in, because I think I was only like 11 or something like that when Time and Time Again was coming out. And, you know, so you're sort of forced into this situation where you kind of have to balance tracking down all the back issues that you want over and against keeping up on uh, keeping up with the unfolding story that's going on right now. And so I don't know that any kid could find a, a perfect balance for that. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if there is a perfect balance to be found. I'm just saying that, you know, that was the situation that I found myself in. So an already complicated story is now that much more complicated to follow because I'm only getting bits and pieces of it. And so that was a challenge. And so I guess just to kind of summarize, my natural prejudices kind of led me to side against the Legion of Superheroes, especially insofar as uh, Superboy being a member is concerned. But then the first time I read a more modern story that featured the Legion of Superheroes, I had no idea what the fuck was going on, right? And so that was another obstacle. And so it's just one more strike that the Legion of Superheroes has against them. Now, all of this started to change in the wake of Zero Hour. You kind of got to flash forward a few years here. But, you know, 
Zero Hour came, it saw, it kicked the DC Universe right in the ass. And one of the things that came out of that was a rebooted Legion of Superheroes. And I thought, okay, well, this is great. You know, it's got Mark Wade. Well, I really dig Mark Wade. Then as now, I considered myself to be a pretty big Mark Wade fan. And even though I was never the type of fan to follow a creator from one book to another or anything like that, at the same time, Mark Wade had generated so much goodwill from me that I was actually very inclined, shall we say, to give this rebooted Legion of Superheroes a chance. Because, you know... it may be hard to remember it now, but back then, reboots of any kind in comics were pretty rare. You know, I mean, honestly, I think reboots, like, all out, full scale, scorched earth, page one reboots, I think they're rare in comics even now. But, especially back then, it was, it was the rare comic that got the, you know, the full treatment, you know, the, the page one reboot but this time the legion of superheroes did now and i sort of talked about it in i think it was my very first episode of trinus magnus punches reality but i basically talked about how it was that i got forced out of uh, collecting comics for a lot of years there and so one of the casualties of all of that was the legion of superheroes because it kind of felt like after zero hour i mean yeah dc had those they they had zero month where they wrote basically uh, trying to think of the best way to put it <clears throat> accessible stories for their zero issues ideally it was a way it was basically a sort of new ground floor on you know onto which you know you could get into any book you know whether it's superman or batman uh, starman or Actually, Starman was starting. It was just launching from zero hour. But you get the idea. And so there were a lot of books that I wanted to give, you know, kind of... I just want to kick the tires on. And, you know, Starman was one of them. Legion of Superheroes and Legionnaires. Those were two of them. And, you know, a lot of other ones as well. Because I thought, you know, even, even then I knew that this sort of thing is pretty rare in comics. And so it's important to capitalize on it, right? Well fucking ended up never happening so because i ended up getting forced out of uh, collecting comics and so that's not what i wanted to have happened but nevertheless that is in fact what did happen and i think the catalyst for wanting to give the legion of superheroes another chance number one it's one of those comic book properties it's one of those dc titles that had been around for so many years that i was starting to think you know if it's lasted this long there's got to be some type of redeeming value to this, you know? So, so there's that. But I guess, you know, the other angle there is, like I said, Mark Wade was going to be drawing it, but Wizard Magazine did a feature about the rebooted Legion of Superheroes. And, you know, they talked about, you know, some of the things that were going on and, you know, what would what would be coming down the pipeline and all that fun stuff. And so I thought, well, you know, this may be the best chance I get to test drive the Legion of Superheroes and just see what it's all about. And also, I can't really unders- uh, underscore this part enough. The artwork 
there's just something about it that really played for me, you know? And I don't know why, but the Legion of Superheroes that I'd seen up to then had been drawn... Well, what I remember for sure was... I want to say it was uh, Al Plastino and maybe a couple of others. Dan Jurgens, he's in there. But there was just something about it that just looked off somehow. I couldn't really explain it, but I just didn't really connect to that. And so, so there's that to consider. But then the Legion of Superheroes, this whole post-Zero Hour uh, Legion of Superheroes, uh, comes down the pipeline. And as I say, you know, uh, Wizard Magazine, back when, you know, they mattered, sort of, um, you know, whatever degree of importance and credibility uh, that Wizard Magazine ever had, well, they were at a point in time when they finally had it. And so, you know, I thought, well, this is, you know, again, this is probably going to be the best chance that I get. And a big part of that had to do with the art. And I remember at the time that the artist, I want to say it was on Legion of Superheroes, it was Stuart Eminem, which is punk rock all by itself. I loves me some Stuart Eminem. But the other, the other one, I want to say it was uh, Jeffrey Moy. He was drawing Legionnaires. And I felt like, you know, those are not necessarily complementary art styles. But at the same time, it felt like both of them were appropriate to what the Legion of Superheroes seemed like it was trying to be. And so both of those sort of worked for me, you know. I've never really figured out how to classify Stuart Eminem's art. Um, it's just comic booky. I don't know how else to put it. I just, I really like his art. And I'm, I'm one of those people who thinks that he just got better and better and better, you know, as the years went by. And so, uh, so there's that. The other one, like I said, this was Jeffrey Moy. And he had a sort of more uh, cartoony type of style that, again, I thought was... It was appropriate to the sort of youth and energy that the Legion of Superheroes, as a concept, needs to have. And so, you know, there you go. And plus, there was the fact that their costumes got a, you know, they got a facelift and they were, at the time, a little bit more modern. And I thought that that looked kind of neat, too, that there was a sort of, it's not a uniform but uh, that they had common uh, stylistic elements, common design elements, you know, between all the costumes, you know, so that I would kind of liken it. It, 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 it was the sort, the sort of weird middle ground between a common uniform where everybody is dressed the exact same and then the X-Men at the time where, yeah, everybody had their own look, but it seemed like a lot of it, could be boiled down to yellow and blue with sort of common motifs and symbols like X's and stuff like that. And so, you know, it just sort of reminded me of that. And I thought this was a good compromise between those two approaches. And plus the fact that it, you know, the entire concept of the Legion of Superheroes is that it takes place in the future. That also worked for me. So, you know, all around, I just thought that this is the perfect opportunity to get in on the Legion of Superheroes. And, you know, in the end, it just, it ended up just, like I said, not really happening. But I did eventually end up reading a good bit of the uh, post-Zero Hour Legion, and I'll probably talk about that 
on my show at some point, but, you know, that's getting ahead of ourselves. But um, I guess for right now, you know, I just felt like talking a little bit about the Legion of Superheroes, and a good bit of that, like I said, is inspired by Michael Bailey and the Irredeemable Shag, and episode number 188 of Views from the Long Box, where they talked a lot about the Legion. And so it just kind of reminded me about all the things of about this Legion of Superheroes that I love. And I don't know, just felt like, I guess I just felt like just putting it all out there. Now, I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure when I'm going to revisit the three-boot Legion of Superheroes. Um, I talked about that fairly early on. I want to say that was episode number three of my show. That sounds right. Uh, I don't know what, even when I'm going to revisit that, so for damn sure, I don't know when I'm going to get around to the post-zero-hour Legion, but, you know, it's just, at some point, I do want to talk about those things. Now, as to talking about, you know, the traditional version of the Legion, the, for lack of a better term, <clears throat> unbooted version of the Legion of Superheroes, I've got a little bit more of a complicated relationship with that vintage of the team, and again, you know, there are reasons for that none of which are really worth getting into here except to say that there are aspects of that original concept of Legion of Superheroes that it's always kind of bothered me and so anyway so I don't know it's another it's another discussion for another day I realize so so there's that but you know it just I felt like talking about it so Legion of Superheroes. So, like I say, not sure when I'm going to revisit the three-boot Legion of Superheroes, and I really don't know when I'm going to get a chance to talk about the the uh, post-zero-hour Legion of Superheroes, other than to say for sure that I am going to do it, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm looking forward to the time when I can, so it's going, you know, it's going to be great. So, anyway, Legion of Superheroes. Long live the Legion. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E. F-R-E-A-K-S You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S M-A-G-N-U-S-S You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know... You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link 
donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick easy and can help you spread the word about your show i'm always looking for more promos to play keep it fairly short and yours could be next my promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested just look for the promo section the contents of this podcast are fictitious hypothetical and probably completely unnecessary any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.